we could then say, well, what is a constructive and less constructive way of approaching this? And motivation interviewing has some suggestions about one way of helping people. It's not the only way because people are so different and diverse that it's very difficult to say this is the best way. But motivational interviewing is not something that you do to or on someone to unlock something in them. It's something you do on their behalf with them where they unlock something in themselves. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. Wherever you are in the world right now, I genuinely appreciate your time and energy and hope you find takeaway value from any episode that you listen to. The whole idea behind this podcast is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen field, whatever that field may be. In seeking to better understand the life journeys of my guests, it provides me with deeper insight into the work that they do and their desire to make a positive impact in the world. Regardless of who my guest is, for example, a professional athlete, an Olympian, a best-selling author, distinguished researcher, or an educational leader, I always learn so much from the conversations that I have with them. In today's episode, I feel very lucky to have had Dr. Stephen Rolnick on my show. You're going to learn a lot about Stephen today, but just to give you some background into his life, uh, Stephen provides consultancy, mentorship, and training on the subjects of motivation, change, teamwork, and motivational interviewing. He is an honorary distinguished professor in the School of Medicine in Cardiff University with a research record focused on good practice in efforts to promote change and behavior change among patients, clients, and the practitioners who serve them. Stephen is also a clinical psychologist with many years of experience in the service provision and in the training of practitioners. This work, much of it on motivational interviewing, has taken him into diverse cultures and settings. He has now retired to focus on training, writing, and consultancy in the fields of healthcare and sport. Stephen is the co-founder of Motivational Interviewing, which you will learn a lot about in this episode today. And his work has included support to programs for pregnant teens, children with HIV and AIDS in Africa, and medication adherence in different areas. I really enjoyed this discussion with Stephen as it was great to really dig deeply into what motivational interviewing is and better understanding the role of empathic listening in the process of motivational interviewing itself. Stephen is a warm-hearted, kind person who is very giving with his time. The episode was actually two parts put together into one show as I had conducted this interview with him over two different weekends. Near the end of the podcast, Stephen shares a very powerful story of a woman whose life he saved. 
He spotted a woman climbing the railing of a pedestrian bridge, and luckily he was near her at the time and was able to put his skills of motivational interviewing into action, which ultimately saved her life. You'll hear him explain what happened later in this podcast. However, I, I must admit and provide full disclosure here, I was really triggered by this story and had difficulty containing my emotions. I have a brother who committed suicide six years ago, around this time of year actually, and lost another brother to drug addiction around this time of year. So I think it was the story of the woman on the bridge and, and Stephen being there to really help her that triggered me because my brother really didn't have anybody there for him the last couple of years of his life before he took his own life. And, and uh, it just really triggered me. And I just have to be honest with you, wherever you are right now listening to this, um, you know, rather than, I guess, I, I thought that I would just cut that whole part out. I thought, no, you know, I just have to really, it's, it's an authentic part of who I am and I wanted to share it. Um, because I know that mental health and uh, depression is a real issue in the current world right now. And, and rather than cover it up, I just felt that it was important to kind of share a bit of my story to Stephen and to kind of frame our conversation near the end of the podcast around how motivational interviewing can really help um, people who are in difficult situations. So um, I opened up to Stephen about my story to kind of better un unpack the roles of empathy and compassion uh, when dealing with people who suffer from mental illness, addiction, and other serious issues. And it's not like I wanted Stephen to counsel, counsel me in that moment or turn the episode into a therapy session, but more so to allow him to kind of share his deep insight into how motivational interviewing can be used uh, in difficult situations. So... Uh, but also something else I want to mention about this uh, episode is that you may hear some background static or kind of a crackling sound at times, and I did my best to edit these parts out, but it is still noticeable in, in some parts of this discussion. So I hope it doesn't distract you from the great discussion that I have had with uh, Stephen in this episode. So um, again, thanks for listening. And with that, let's jump right into my discussion with Dr. Stephen Rolnick. Okay, Stephen, it's uh, great to have you on the podcast. I, I came across your work uh, quite a while ago, but it's just been uh, kind of dropping into conversations that I've been having with educators around the world. And a few weeks ago, your name was mentioned, and then I really took a deeper dive into your work. And you have such an extensive body of work. So um, before we begin the conversation, I just want to commend you on, on your contribution to the field and the impact that you've had. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and lovely to meet you. Yeah, you as well, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And before uh, we started this conversation, before I hit record, I told you that there's a million directions that I could go. I mean, this could oh. be like a four-part series, so I want to take this, you know, however long we have, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and, and try to uh, take a deep dive into motivational interviewing. But before we start... Uh, or get there, can you just begin with providing some background and context for the listeners and just talk about who you are, where you're from, and anything you want to share about early days just to kind of set the frame? Sure, sure. I grew up in uh, uh, apartheid-ravaged 
South Africa and uh, went to a, a free school as a kid to begin with, uh, with no rules, no nothing. And so I learned a lot about creative play and fighting and freedom um, <laughs> as a youngster. Um, but then got increasingly oppressed by the education and the political system in South Africa. Left there, came and settled in the UK where I've been ever since. And um, uh, tra trained and worked as a clinical psychologist for more decades than I'd like to acknowledge. And then ended up in a medical school as an academic. And then when I retired, in a way, I sort of, I suppose, went back to my roots at Full Circle because I've heard my first thought was to um, think about how motivational interviewing was relevant in schools, given my checkered experience in schools and those are my kids. And then back into, then into sport, which I've always loved. So my re recent work has been in work has been in writing a book for sports coaches on motivational interviewing. And now I work as a mentor and mostly as a mentor to sports coaches and athletes. So when we, when we say sports, is it the idea of sport in general, or do you have a kind of certain sports that you gravitate toward? No, because in writing the book, I decided to uh, travel around as much as I could. This was four or five years ago and learn about sports coaching in general. So I've been in, I've been on the side of the field on the New York Giants on the touchline uh, during a game with the owner and I've been in the, with the New York Mets, but I've also been in the ghettos of South Chicago and Baltimore awesome. and, um, Ditto in on a beach in Cape Town with surf therapists, and you know. So I, I, and then back in the UK here, I've got a particular passion for football, American uh, soccer, as you say, and uh, cricket is my first love. But I also work with rugby coaches, uh, hockey coaches. So yeah, no, very diverse, um, and not that hard for me to see the common themes. Um, but what I love about sport is the sheer pleasure that everybody gets out of it. Um, and I suppose that suits me as a retired gent, not looking for too hard a life. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're familiar, obviously, with Dr. Michael Gervais, right? Yeah, yeah. I know him quite well. So I'm part of his um, tribe, and I took his Compete to Create course that he created with Pete Carroll. And um, so I'm, I've been uh, a part of... Uh, that journey of finding mastery for a number of years. And it's taught me so much, not only about uh, sport. I'm an, I'm an avid golfer, a competitive golfer, but I also played competitive American football. I was a quarterback and a punter. And I took all of the life lessons from sport and, and kind of filtered it into a career in education and then kind of stumbled my way through education, trying to find my own niche. And right. I was really passionate about working with teachers to... Uh, provide the right conditions for all learners to flourish. And that just really drives me day in and day out in the work that I do. And right. when I think of your journey beginning in South Africa and then moving over to the UK, what were some early strengths that you had uh, developed within yourself that helped to kind of guide you along your journey? What, what two or three strengths do you think you, you possessed that really helped? Wow. Wow, I, that's a, that's that's a fantastic question, and I don't never thought about that because my my every memory of it was about not weaknesses but about difficult difficulties, and so I guess maybe one of the strengths was an ability to uh, 
face up to difficulties or to force myself to um, get over hurdles. But I, I saw a lot of unpleasant things and um, I left under quite difficult circumstances, being chased by military police, fascist military police. So, you know, landed in the UK without a job, without any immigration status, did the run of the, the, the immigration people this side. So, you know, a lot of it was, was a bit of a battle, but I think the strengths must have been a, a sense of what I had experienced was a morally unacceptable and um, on the clinical front, because I'd done a bit of work in mental health as a nurse in the addictions field out there, um, ethically unacceptable clinically, what I saw. And that, that single phrase that I used there provided uh, uh, the seed for motivational interviewing for me, which I'm a sort of a co-creator of. But I wasn't aware of that at the time. I just knew that what I'd experienced clinically in a treatment environment there was was bizarre and unacceptable. But then I ran and I got trained as a clinical psychologist and then noticed similar patterns in mental health treatment in this in, in Britain, where I was then working as a psychologist. So um yeah, it was a it was a confusing world where the way people were spoken to about um how they could change. Um, just didn't seem constructive, and that provided the seeds for motivational interviewing. Yeah, and I find that fascinating. And, and I've been very, it took me a long time to come to grips with the uh, mental illness that had plagued my family growing up. And I, I feel like, you know, I had kind of covered it up for years. And yeah. I, so I grew up in a family that was plagued by uh, mental illness, health issues, mental health issues, addiction depression. I've lost uh, one brother to suicide from major depression and another brother to addiction. And, yeah. and what I'm eternally grateful for is finding sport and finding uh, a purpose and meaning through sports. So that was my path playing American football. And that just gave me an outlet and an escape. Wow. And wow. through the years of trying to figure out the addiction and, and I was having a lot of success playing sport, I saw two very talented brothers just um, suffer enormously, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and then I know I have a genetic predisposition to, to mental health issues and right. depression and addiction. So it's always something that I've been acutely aware of and more reason why I'm passionate about reaching every learner and yeah. helping to understand and have empathy yeah. And to create the conditions for for students to flourish, and um, so I guess I want to go full circle back to motivational interviewing. And I yes. guess can you just describe for the because I've done a lot of uh, research around it, but for the listener, can you just describe what motivational interviewing is and what the purpose of it is? It's a way of speaking to people about change in which you rely on their own motivation and good reasons to change, and you create the environment, the conversational environment for them to do that and thereby flourish. And I could put it in fancier language and, and, and talk about some of the, the intricacies thereof, but what I observed in, uh, in treatment environments uh, in South Africa and the United Kingdom, in the addictions field, that's where it was, that's where motivational interviewing started, 
Well, conversations that didn't create that environment of safety and involved the practitioner telling the client what was good for them. And so the conversations weren't pleasant to be part of, which I was, to observe. And um, motivational interviewing, if you like, is the polar opposite of that. So it's, it's a way of speaking to people so that they say why and how they might change rather than you do. So it's unlocking internal resources with them and, and, and getting them to be a part. So it's more of a collaboration rather than a top-heavy approach where they're being told what to do. Yeah, you've noticed that so that there's a more balanced, mm-hmm. equitable relationship in it. And that provides the foundation for helping them to say why and how they might change, as well as for providing information and advice. But it's, it's how that information and advice is provided that's as important as its content. In the work that counselors do and, and coaches do, so I, I do a lot of work around uh, instructional coaching. Yeah. And it, it's all about unlocking internal resources and knowing when somebody's stuck you can see it that they're stuck. Yeah. What is the strategy? I don't want to say the strategy to get them unstuck, but what are some of the obstacles that get in the way of change? Do you think, and how do you spot when somebody's stuck and what are some mechanisms or strategies you put into place to help them um, become more self-aware? Yeah, that's super clear. That challenge that you present sounds like, you come across it in education and sport and it's widespread. And it sounds to me like it's part of the human condition where somebody with good intentions is trying to help someone else who is stuck. And I I can imagine that without difficulty in my home with my children, uh, with elderly parents, with friends, um, and in in more professional circumstances in uh, with sports coaches, teachers, and in mental health. So it's, it's something that you and I can agree on, that it's a very common human predicament that someone's struggling to change. And what we uncovered, I don't think we discovered it, but what we uncovered was hesitancy or what we called ambivalence. This was in a clinical context, okay? So what is very common is that someone's feeling stuck and uncertain about change, okay? And we use the term, the, the, the psychological term ambivalence, although it's, it's, it's a widely used word, which, re- which means, I guess, someone feeling two ways about something, okay? And um, that can apply to someone stuck in the grip of addiction. It, it's both my best friend and my worst enemy. So, yeah, there's a conflict there. Or someone who's feeling depressed, I don't want to get out of bed yet, I know that it's probably a good idea or whatever. Right across to the athlete who's taking instructions from a coach and thinking, actually, mm -mm, I'm not so sure this suits me. So we could then say, well, what is a constructive and less constructive way of approaching this? And motivational interviewing has some suggestions about one way of helping people it's not the only way because people are so different and diverse that it's very difficult to say this is the best way but motivational interviewing is not something that you do to or on someone to unlock something in them 
It's something you do on their behalf with them where they unlock something in themselves. And so um, the art, because it's not just a technique, the art is to effectively get out, create the right conditions in a conversation of safety for them. And the art involves getting out of the way while they unlock it for themselves. And it, it, if people don't feel safe when they're feeling uncertain or ambivalent, you can mess it up. You can mess up the conversation. You can mess up their emotional well-being and outcomes by trying to resolve the problem for them. And I can dive a little bit deeply into that if you like. But in one sense, motivational interviewing is a way of handling ambivalence or uncertainty in someone. And that idea of um, exploring ambivalence, and I think I, I read that in your work, uh, exploring and helping to resolve ambivalence. And, and I, I look at that term repacking. I came across that word of repacking in your work. And to me, that was paraphrasing. Yes. Right? The idea of paraphrasing what, what your client or the, the athlete is saying. Um, but there are different types of paraphrasing, literal paraphrasing, abstract paraphrasing. Can you talk a little bit about uh, reflective listening, first of all, you know, I, I'm really interested in knowing about what reflective listening means in this process, but also that uh, the skill of paraphrasing as a, a reflective listener, you know, because they're, they're very tightly connected. So, you know, they're so tightly connected and there's so much uh, jargon, quite complex jargon around the field of psychology that and clinical psychology that I, 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 my best suggestion is to simplify it and to, um, you might want to use the word paraphrase, you might want to use the word uh, reflection, or you might want to use the word listening statement, which is what I'm tempted to use these days because it's less jargonized. But whatever you call it, okay, whatever you call it, what you're pointing to is... <clears throat> a conversation that doesn't involve just asking someone questions. So if you're faced with somebody who's feeling uncertain about change and you have a reasonable connection with them, which needs to be established and worked on continuously, and you're approaching the subject of their ambivalence and their, their, their reluctance to change, you don't want to just have the conversation by asking them questions. It's unnatural. You don't find it in everyday life conversations about change unfolding with one question after another. It creates a discrepancy in power because if I ask you a question, you give an answer, and I've got to ask another question, puts you in a position of facility. So reflective listening or listening statements are the skills that you use in conjunction with questions that give the conversation a number of magic things helps the conversation to flow, helps the person to feel safe to run the conversation themselves, actually, in front of you, but critically helps them feel understood and empathized with. So another phrase for reflection or a listening statement is empathic listening. Okay? So, and this comes from the field of Rogerian counseling and one of our uh, uh, people we're really indebted to, which is Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers, Thomas Gordon. So you can read about them in Thomas Gordon, most enjoyably in parent effectiveness training. It's a brilliant book. It was written in the late 60s, I think. And I've just bought a copy recently. And uh, 
It has a remarkable similarity to our work. But basically, when you're talking about change, if you ask someone, what concerns have you got about your addiction problem? Or if you state it positively and you're speaking to an athlete and you say, how do you see yourself improving now over the next couple of months? The answer to either of those questions will be their own good reasons to change. Okay? Not yours, theirs. Okay? Their good reasons to change are predictors of whether they will change. So that, that starts now addressing, that starts, uh, it, could, it could trigger us to talk about science and the research on this. And motivational interviewing, like it or not, has been subjected to more randomized trials than any intervention that I've ever heard of. Thousands, thousands of, of controlled trials. And so they've looked quite carefully at this. When someone starts expressing why or how they might change their own good reasons, your best bet is not to ask another question. And that's where reflection comes in. Because what you're doing is summarizing your understanding of what you think they're saying and experiencing and feeling. That is empathic listening, and it leaves them feeling, wow, this person gets me. And then they add on, and they say more, and they dig a little bit deeper into how they're feeling. And in arranging the conversation in that way, in which you use empathic listening statements after asking a question, people get to really feel understood and are able to unravel the difficulty for themselves in front of you. So the, the idea of building in silence, one of the, the things that when I first did my, my training around um, instructional coaching was, you know, I was, I was told the power of silence. You let silence go, but people are often uncomfortable with silence. But when we allow silence to enter a discussion, then the person that you are working with has time to reflect and think. And can we talk about the power of the pause and, and, and silence in, in this process? It is, it is if, if they feel you are being genuine and authentic with the silence and they feel safe enough in the conversation, as you put it, it gives them pause for thought can be powerful and healing. And so it also creates a kind of a breathing space for you to also to reflect, to be aware of your own emotional state, to not get in their way, to not put a hurdle or a roadblock in their way, because the silence, you, you notice things in the silence yourself. So it's not just about them, it's also about me. And I find it particularly useful when I'm um, working clinically with somebody to slow the pace down for that very reason. But I, I would emphasize that it has to be a genuine, authentic silence, not something do, done to or on people because they'll pick that up straight away as inauthentic. So it's not a trick or a technique. Mm -hmm. It's just a natural part of, of a very reflective conversation. Mm -hmm. And when I think of, um, you know, the idea of expressing empathy and, you know, there are five principles to your approach and there are four processes. And I, I think, you know, you started to talk about the idea of expressing empathy and motivational interviewing. And that's one of the first principles. 
Um, is it okay if we just continue to kind of unpack the principles just to give people a little more insight? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Highlight whichever ones you're interested in. So the five principles express empathy, develop discrepancy, avoid arguments, roll with resistance, and support self-efficacy. So can you talk, you talked a little bit about expressing empathy and that idea of really um, getting to know the person's story and, and really empathizing with them. What about developed discrepancy as one of the other principles? Can you speak to that? No, I think it's a, it was a mistake um, to use that. And it's actually, we've subsequently revised that. So uh, the reason for that is, look, what happens when you're having a good conversation with someone about change is that they notice a gap between the way they are and the way they'd like to be. That's what we mean by discrepancy. Mm -hmm. So what you and I have been talking about is creating the safe space for people to talk about the uncertainty where they notice that. But it's them noticing it that's important, not you developing it. So we kind of took that phrase out because it creates the impression that, that you've got to do something to someone, which is a mistake. So um, th that's an older uh, set of principles there. Um, so funnily enough, that one I don't want to talk about, right? Okay, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think it's worthwhile. I think, I've, I think we've captured what a good conversation about change might feel like already. The idea of rolling with resistance, similarly there, we've moved on a wee bit, but I know exactly what the essence of that was, which is that these conversations about change can be tough and difficult, and they can be abrasive, okay? Why haven't you done your homework, a teacher says to a kid, right? Oh, sir, because I, and then the excuse comes up, right? Now, that is a discordant conversation, and it's not going to promote change, it might promote shame, it might promote compliance, but it won't promote change, okay? So the essence of what we've discovered in motivational interviewing, coming from the addictions field where there were a lot of those negative judgments about people's motivation and behavior, is that if you use reflective listening and empathic listening in the face of a kid not doing its homework, or an addict not being able to change their behavior, this discord lessens, calms down, and the person gets to feel more receptive to change. And so that idea of rolling with resistance came from, I suppose, this, in a way, paradox, which is the worst thing to do when there's a problem is attack it. The best thing to do is, 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 is to roll with it and come alongside someone and show them that you understand how they feel. Then there's less resistance, okay? So these, these principles that, that you're referring to are background understandings that you have, which I don't think you want to feel um, are too complicated. I'll tell you why. Because I've seen the most brilliant teachers and sports coaches doing this naturally. Okay, without ever having heard of motivational interviewing. So most of what's involved in motivational interviewing sits there in a good teacher, a good parent, a good sports coach. What we've done is simply give words to what this powerful way of speaking to people is and add a few extra things on top of that, which we've noticed from a clinical context, make a hell of a difference. Okay, and I can clarify what those extra yes. things are. 
Yeah, I would, because I, I really want to know more about the role of motivation, but please clarify. And then I want to talk more about the role of motivation through this process. Yeah, you being, you're being a very um, delightfully challenging and creative interviewer yourself. Um, how about this? How about this for a, uh, a, a conceptual frame which, which might help us and your listeners to ground everybody. How about this? That we are, we use different styles when we're trying to help people. Okay. Right. And and let's say there's three. Um, this is not the last word on the subject, but let's say there's three. One is a directing style in which you tell people what to do. You tell them why. You tell them how, and you tell them what to do. And it's widely used, probably overused, mm-hmm. particularly when people are feeling stressed, okay? It, but it, is, it does have uses. It's essential in, in healthcare and all sorts of activities, parenting too. And then at the other extreme, there's what you might call a following style, in which the per, you let the person do the running, you base yourself mostly on listening, widely used by doctors and nurses when somebody's very upset, breaking bad news to somebody, you really want to give them a lot of space and a lot of time and follow what they need. Between those two and sits in the, in, sitting in the middle is what you could call a guiding star, okay, in which your job is to encourage someone to support them, to motivate them, to help them improve. So if you imagine a mountain guide or even a travel guide, that person's got quite a lot of expertise, but they use their expertise very carefully in the interests of you clarifying why and how you want to do things. Autonomy. Autonomy is very important, Mm -hmm. okay? And respect for your autonomy is important. So we've used natural language in describing this this, this conceptual framework. Mm -hmm. The question then becomes, well, where does motivational interviewing fit into this? And what I've realized over the years is that it's really just a refined form of guiding. Most of motivational interviewing sits in the values and behavior of a good guide. A good guide will come alongside the person, not talk down at them and patronize them. A good guide will clarify what somebody wants to do and why. And a good guide will offer, not impose, information and advice. So we, we have the sage on the stage, we have the guide on the side, right? Correct. And when I, when I think of a good educator and a, and a great coach, I think of the ability to switch roles, you know, because sometimes there needs to be a bit of sage on the stage it, when they see that that's what's needed in the moment. As you said, with your example of the mountain guide, and then there's the guide on the side, the facilitator, and trying to create the conditions of autonomy and, and building that, that relationship and knowing the person that you're dealing with, then it allows you to switch the roles when you see best fit. And this is the thing that fascinates me because what, what you just said is that the great teachers and the great coaches, it just comes naturally. But how the hell does it come naturally? Is it, is it based on their upbringing, their temperament, their, their skills and dispositions, what they've been through. Like there's just, I, I just don't understand when you see greatness in a teacher and greatness in a coach, where did they get it from? And I know that there's not one single point, but 
I just want to go back to that idea of like, what are your thoughts on the, the um, guy on the side and the sage on the stage and then rotating? Is that an accurate summary of what a, what a good coach and teacher does? I think it's beautiful. And I think it's exactly, you're exactly right. And I've wondered the same thing. And I'm just trying to give words to what I think are the qualities inside a good teacher and, a, and or skillful coach. And um, it's, it's an incredible question. How did they learn this? I th- they learn it from life experiencing and, and seeing very good models around them. I predict, I don't know, I haven't met Steve Carroll, but I think, for, for example, I think he's, a, he's an American football coach, yeah? yeah. And he works closely with, with Mike Gervais. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect he has learned this from his parents and from being very reflective himself, and you see it in a lot of other top, not, not necessarily top, I've seen it in community, in, in, in a ghetto in Baltimore. I saw a brilliant coach working, absolutely stunning, with the same qualities that Pete Carroll's got, mm-hmm. which is an ability to understand what someone needs to thrive. And it's that sensitivity that, that they've developed probably through their childhood from being at the receiving end of, of, of high-quality parenting. So there's probably a number of influences, but the outcome is someone who is able to flex. And um, I'm only sorry that we can't um, speak to these people, like Pete Carroll and some of the community coaches that, 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 that I've observed, and get it from them, like the answer to this question of yours. We're just speculating here. Mm-hmm. But certainly, flexibility understanding the needs of the individual, a capacity to empathize, which is probably essential for developing the relationship, okay, so that you can flex. So if you've got a good relationship with an athlete, for example, or a school student, if you've got that good connection, you can use a strong directing style because they trust you. Mm-hmm. Right? If someone's teaching me to mountain climb, a rock climb, and I really trust them, I'll do what they say. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not that one is is bad and the other is good. It's just that they suit different circumstances. Okay. I recently had Dr. Richard Ryan on from Self Determination Theory. Um, Wonderful. Goodman, great insight, very personable, and and again, his work has really influenced the work that I've done in education and in sport. And the three human fundamental needs of autonomy, relatedness, and competence. And when those needs are met, we're more than likely to be able to better flourish. So everything that we're talking about, the relatedness piece is the relationship and building trust first and foremost, but also the autonomy piece, which then leads into the discussion about intrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivation. So when you look at motivational interviewing, I, don't, I know I don't want it to be lockstep approach or a linear approach, but, but how do you strive to develop intrinsic motivation within the clients, whether it be an athlete or somebody suffering from addiction, to, to really work with them to intrinsically motivate? Because we know based on research that when you're intrinsically motivated, change will likely happen. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And, um, um, that that self determination theory and the work of of, of, of Rich Ryan, um, 
I found really useful and inspiring. And in one sense, motivational interviewing is a way of having a conversation so that you meet those three basic needs. Okay. And if you say, well, how do you do that? What is it in that conversation? Look, if I, if I ask an athlete is struggling, how do you think you're best to resolve this challenge you're faced with? Their answer, what we call change talk in motivation interview, is an expression of their motivation to change. And that motivation is coming from inside them. Okay, so in simple language, that's intrinsic motivation that they are expressing rather than you, right? And motivational interviewing provides the tools for you highlighting, noticing that, highlighting it with them, affirming it, asking them to explore it more, because that is like you pouring water on a young and growing plant, or if you like, um, blowing into a fire that you want to get warmer by. In, you know, in, in, in this sense, what we're talking about is very simple. I mean, we can drop into all sorts of com complex theories and stuff, but if you ask someone, how would you like to improve? It's so simple. It's not complicated. And if you use empathic listening and response, and then you have to kind of sit on the side and listen to that conversation, you'll say, but that's a very normal conversation. And it is. It is. It's a very normal and natural conversation. The fact that something is simple doesn't mean it's easy to do. That, that I would say. So the skill involves humility on your part to reflect about what's helpful to reflect about your own emotional state and skill development and to practice getting better and better and better at using these core skills like open questions and particularly the empathic listening. Because that, that form of listening is not just there in order to help someone feel understood. It's there in order to blow into the flames of change. Because you're, what you're talking about is change. How you then respond using empathic listening can allow that fire to grow or, or knock it out. You've got an enormous freedom there to encourage someone to flourish and work out a solution for themselves or to block the process. One of the biggest things that has gotten in the way of, of me being a more effective coach, I think I'm much better at it now. I've worked very hard at it. I, I'm very passionate about the things I believe in and education and, and coaching and autonomy and, and choice and providing, you know, having these relationships that you build with whoever you're working with. But I have val these values within myself. And when I am coaching or working with people um, that don't have the same values, I can let my values get in the way. And that's where I have to, I'm better at catching myself. And I, when I feel triggered, you know, as a coach, um, I sometimes let my values get in the way of the discussion and it just kills it right away. I mean, nothing extinguishes flames quicker than me trying to impose my own values in a discussion. And it's been, uh, 
recently I've been having some discussions with researchers in my field. My background is physical education and health. And we're really passionate about creating change and inspiring young people to be physically active for life in their own ways, rather than imposing fitness outcomes on them and all of these things that we, you know, teachers think are best. So I get in my own way sometimes by my own values. So what is your advice to somebody like me as a coach who's doing their best, who's passionate to become more aware of the values that you hold, get in the way of your success and breakthroughs? Well, I, I think, you, I think you, you're answering the question beautifully yourself because you're saying being aware of this is incredibly important. Imagine not being aware of it. I mean, so, you know, you, 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 oh, being aware of it is important. If I, off the top of my head, I would say, the other piece of advice I would give you is to take feedback from the person you're speaking to about what's helpful to them. And so this ability to take feedback from someone, to be humble enough to take feedback from somebody and to be reflective about that, I think is one of the characteristics of a fine coach or teacher. And, and I would say also that there's, there's a lot of research in mental health that finds that they call it the difference between a super shrink and a pseudo shrink. You want to have a look at that, that, look that up in Google, super shrink versus pseudo shrink, right? Two qualities stand out in super shrinks who get good outcomes. It's not years of experience. It's not seniority and status. It's two things. One is the ability to empathize, and the other is the, the willingness and getting into the habits of continually getting feedback from the person they're working with about how helpful it is. And I noticed this, too, in high-quality coaches, whether they're in the community or in, in school or in an a, a elite setting they're sensitive to this and they get feedback and they ask for it which means so that they, have, they have to be open to it and yeah. what are what are ways of what like the typical feedback question is what's one thing uh, i can do better what's what's one thing that is getting in the way of me being uh, more um, me helping you more whatever but can you give some examples of what feedback questions might look like and how they might be framed yeah, I haven't worked hard enough on this, you know. I've often spoken to sports coaches in the last few years about, well, do you ever ask athletes for feedback? Some do and some don't. A lot don't. So I can't say I've, I've, I've dived into this myself, but I would be tempted to leave the word I out. I, I would be tempted to, to suggest use you. In other words, be guy. So you would say something like that. What's going to be most helpful to you now? Not what's the best way for me to help yeah, you because it places you at the center. Okay. Of course, you'll be thinking about it for you, yeah. their answer, but don't personalize the conversation around me. You can say, what do you think is going to be most helpful to you right now? I'll give you an example. I spoke just last week to an elite cricketer, seriously senior, right? We were having a cup of coffee and we were sharing some frustrations about the club that we're both working in at the moment, right? And he says... Yeah, no, I don't want I don't want the coach to come to me when I make a mistake, which I do, which I used to, because he used to be a high end cricketer. He's now something else, you know. He's now a director or whatever. He said I didn't want the coach to come to me and discuss my mistake with me. 
You know, that was the last thing I wanted. He said, I'm the sort of person who I know every now and again I make a bad mistake, things go terribly wrong, and I get on with life. That's me. Okay. Now, um, but he said the coaches never used to do that. They never used to ask me what's helpful. Right. And if they had, I would have told them, leave me alone. I made a bad mistake. I know I do. And I'll do better next time, which I usually did. But other players are quite different. Other players will make a mistake and will, will find it helpful to talk about. So people are different to find out what they want. Maybe I'm being too clever here. It's just a bit of a smart-ass comment. But anyway, that's a story from just last week. No, but I, I think there is let's, – let's go back to this idea of differentiation, okay? Yeah. And, and it's a big term in education because the, the old model of education is broken – and the old model was like, everybody will do this and everybody will achieve uh, A, B, and C, and then they will be graded on that, right? Um, so there's one outcome for the class. So obviously the power of differentiating is based on the relationship and understanding what the needs are. So you imagine a teacher um, that has 25 kids in front of them, think of the diverse needs you think of, of math, math and literacy of and course. the so-called core subjects. I don't like to use that term core subjects because I think every discipline is equally important in school, but um, it's all about the relationship and really getting to know and then let go, letting go of outcomes. The curriculums that we teach have outcomes that students will meet these outcomes. So there is a sense of letting go of outcomes and, and working with the student to guide them towards an understanding um, of wherever they're at. And kind of, You've got it. I yeah. totally agree with you. I mean, and, and we could use the word, words processes, process and outcome. And um, I think it's fairly well known in elite sport, much less so in education, and, and it, which is that if you focus on the process and get it right, the outcome takes care of itself. Whereas, you know, you ask, you, I've asked this question to, 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 to many hundreds of, of coaches and teachers and, and, and psychiatrists and also people, why, why did you do the job that you're doing? And what, what gets you up in the morning? And you're not going to find teachers saying, um, really, they, that they went into the profession in order to manage behavior and get good grades in students. That you know, they usually say, I went into teaching because I wanted to be part of, of observing and helping children thrive and grow. That's process. And if you ask a sports coach, they'll say something similar. I wanted to be in an environment where people are having fun and really expressing themselves and being creative and being brilliant at the sport. They don't talk about outcomes. So the, the outcome-driven aspect of our culture in education, sport, and now in healthcare and mental health care, everything is driven by outcomes, is grossly dysfunctional, creates toxic, has a toxic impact on both practitioners and the recipients, and is probably the reason why there's so much interest in motivational interviewing, because people are wondering, hang on, is there a different way of going about this? And motivational interviewing is simply a way of getting the process of the conversation right so that the outcomes take care of themselves. Do, do you see this? So we, I've circled it back around to what yeah. motivational interviewing is. Yeah. And I would have thought highly skilled sports coaches 
would agree with what I've just said. I've got a happy, thriving, together bunch of, of, of people, students, athletes, and I'm there to help them get the best out of them. And they're different. They have different needs. We will get better outcomes. When I reflect on what I know now compared to what I knew when I was playing uh, college football, okay, and yeah. I'll never forget a moment where, and so I'm a quarterback, I'm a small quarterback, quite quick and agile, really good thrower. And I kind of just developed my own style. And um, I had been playing for the elite city team that I'm, I'm from Canada. So I was playing for this elite city team. And I remember that I had, um, it was in this one play where I kind of ran around guys chasing me kind of artistically just creatively made something happen and threw the ball back across my body across the field which is a no-no when you when you throw the ball back across the field because it could get intercepted very easily but it was a complete yeah, pass yeah. it was a complete pass but it wasn't enough for a first down so the kicker had to come in and kick the ball to the other team and when I was running off the field I was quite proud and chuffed that I had just made a great play that was almost a first down my coach at the time comes storming on the field and breaks a clipboard on my head and screams at me for my decision to throw the ball back across the field. And, and that was a coach that I played with for a number of years and he instilled fear in me. So it was this idea of, of the fear of making a mistake, you know? And, and when I see great coaches over the years, that was a long time ago. And I see their ability to, to work with players, to allow the players to make mistakes and learn in their own way, and then to have these beautiful discussions with them to, to get them to reflect and bring out their best. I sometimes just like, I wish I would have had a coach like that back then in those formative years when, when sport meant so much to me. But I just wanted to share that story as an example of, of uh, amazing. It's an amazing story. And uh, you know, um, it truly shocks me, to be honest, um, to see how that approach to coaching still thrives in American college football, for example, and in, in many other sports. So all power to your, to your efforts here, um, let alone in education, because I grew up getting whacked on the bum, yeah. okay, for being too enthusiastic. And... Um, you know, all power to all power to your efforts because um, something we haven't talked about is harm. You know, we talk all positively about how you help people thrive and so on, but the damage that is inflicted on 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 people as a result of being bullied and intimidated and frightened um, by teachers, coaches, and parents is another whole discussion. So, Stephen, uh, thank you very much for being back on the show. This is actually a little bit of a part two because last week we had a great conversation and then I told you a little bit about our community here in Saudi Arabia and going through some uh, some issues with COVID and trying to get back on its feet and we had a um, whole community testing. So I had to bolt out with my family to get testing and then we've been tested again since then. Uh, but the community is taking it very seriously here to help us get back on our feet. So this is really a, a part two and a finisher to our first conversation. So again, yeah, thank you for your time, Stephen. I, I appreciate it. So I want to jump right into, I, I listened to a, a podcast with you with uh, Dr. Michael Gervais, 
uh, Finding Mastery that was done in March 2019. Uh, a great conversation, and I'm going to include that in the show notes here today, but um, you kind of shared your life story growing up in South Africa, then ending up in the UK, and you gave a lot of background into your life that kind of helped set the frame for your conversation with Michael. Uh, and Michael took that in a lot of different directions. Uh, and one story, one story he, he's told, uh, or that you shared in particular, um, was the story about coming across, uh, I think you're in the UK, and if I remember correctly, you were riding your bicycle and you came across a girl on a bridge that was about to jump. And you jumped into gear based on your experience to step in and intervene. So can you give some background, uh, some context with that story and talk about the approach you took? And then I have a question for you about that. Yeah, and it sounds like you're interested in what is it about communication that can make a difference in someone's life? Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like that's what you're intrigued about. Yeah, and so so you you you're highlighting quite, if you like, an unusual extreme example, in order to try and clarify what it is about communication that can be so powerful. Yes. Yeah. And uh, perhaps I should say that I don't think on that bridge I did anything that is 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 not reasonably widely accepted among people who do that for a living. I've heard that there's folk on the Golden Gate Bridge, I've never been there, who are skilled at this. And I've heard of, of, of professionals in, in police and fire services who also share this wisdom. And so what I did it was nothing unique at all. It's fairly well accepted, I think, and I believe probably documented, that the worst thing to do if somebody's in a really difficult situation like that is to try and solve the problem for them or to beseech them or persuade them to step back, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the knowledge, background knowledge that I had because I, I've got it. One of my sons is a police officer, so I've spoken to him extensively about it. Mm-hmm. And I've also spoken a lot with people involved in high-end interviewing in the police field with terror suspects, hostage negotiators. So, I've, you know, so I had a bit of that background. But in the foreground, what happened was, um, I, I think one thing I do have in the foreground is an understanding of the technical skill of empathic listening. Okay. And I learned, I learned that through... Uh, the development of motivational interview. Okay. So if you like armed with that skill, um, I was walking up a bridge in a fairly crowded part of the student quarter when I saw this young girl on the other side of the road climbing up the, the railings of a bridge with earphones in her ears. And it was a crowded bridge and I, I don't know why or whether other people noticed this or whatever, but I saw it. And I dropped my bike and I ran over to her and um, I did not ask her any questions. I simply used empathic listening, and which is that I made one statement after another. Okay, not a question, because a question hits somebody 
as investigative, mm-hmm. as an intrusion. An empathic listening statement, if it's accurate, it lands with them as um, someone is ex- appreciating what I'm experiencing. And it's empathic because when they realize that, it forms a connection between you and that person because they feel understood. So all I did was emit a series of four, five, six empathic listening statements, one after the other. So because she had earphones on, my first was something like, this isn't an easy situation for you. Um, No response. By the second or third, she stopped moving and she took one earpiece out of her ears and I made a couple of other statements and she stepped back down from the brink and still wouldn't look at me, but I carried on making these empathic listening statements. And eventually when she looked at me, I said, how's about we go down and have a cup of tea? And she took me into the university residence kitchen and we sat down together and had a cup of tea and then did what the right thing was, which was to call the university counseling services, get hold of her best friend. And we have remained in touch by text and I've forgotten her name. And once every three, four months, I send her a, a funny text. You're okay. You're coping lighthearted. And she says, fine. And so this was a, a dear and wonderful young person who just got to the point where she felt she couldn't cope. But uh, someone reaching out to her in a moment of crisis, untainted by any prejudice, untainted by any investment in the relationship, was what uh, was helpful at that point in her life. And I, I, you know, honestly, I have to take a deep breath when I hear that story. And, and that's why it struck me and really resonated with me. Um, so my brother committed suicide in yeah. 14, uh, yeah. you know, and he suffered, he suffered tremendously and he shut down and he refused to communicate with anybody in the family for three years prior to his death. Right. And I tried to reach out to him. Yeah. And and I, it was just shut down. Like he wouldn't even acknowledge my emails. He literally said, I will not open this email. So don't, don't send me any emails. And I, I got the the news from my sister. Yes. And, you know, it was terrible, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I feel that I did what I could at the time. And this is partly why, um, I, I get a bit of emotional and I'm sorry, but, um, I just need to take a minute, but, um, I get a bit emotional because, um, there is so much pain in the world, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, I did what I thought that I could do for my brother, but I couldn't save him. And, uh, that's my dog. Nice timing to kind of lighten it up a little bit. Um, Mine is about to dark not bark now, I'll warn you. Yeah. But I, I think that I, I wish my brother would have had somebody like you that, that could have, you know, could have s- spoken to him and, and helped him see a different perspective. But the, the idea of uh, really having empathy and compassion 
is so important and and there's so much trauma out there in the world you know and people don't talk about it and people cover it up and and they mask it and it comes out and it's manifested in multiple ways physically emotionally socially um, but the question that i have for you and I, i don't this is not about doom and gloom um, because I have another brother who died of d- drug addiction. And, and what I've learned through my own life is, is to have empathy, to have great empathy for the people who suffer. And as an educator and a coach and a teacher, I constantly see that. And everything, everything that I do in my life and, and my work is, is through that lens. So my, my brother, um, Ken, my other brother who, who died from drug addiction, he, um, in 1997, um, I was playing on the football team at, in my university, on my university team at the time, and he was a heroin addict, and he was a phenomenal musician. Um, he made uh, custom-built guitars for some of the best Canadian rock bands, and um, he, you know, tragically uh, fell to drugs, and he lost his business, and and I had such compassion and empathy for him, but such anger and frustration that he was losing. You know, I could see him losing his life to this battle. And yes. he had asked me uh, in the height of his heroin addiction uh, for help. And I was there for him. I was the first one there for him. And he said, okay, I can't control this anymore. Take my heroin. So I literally... I'm in university. I'm an athlete on the university team. I'm the captain of the team. I'm a a prominent athlete in the community. Uh, I don't want anybody to know about my brother's addiction. I take his needles of heroin. I put them in my backpack and I go to my classes. And, and, um, and then he could just come back every, every couple hours and just give me, and he wanted me to help him scale off. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And I did that. And then, I, so I'm walking around the university with this heroin in my backpack and then I go back to the house and he's convulsing in the bathtub because he went out and got his own heroin. Yeah. Yeah. And I came came across that and, and I was like shocked and scared. And, um, I called my girlfriend who's my wife now who was in nursing saying, I don't know what to do. And, um, you know, I, I did my best, but when I, and then he died of drug addiction in 1999. And when I reflected back on that experience, I thought, like, where does empathy and compassion uh, get in the way where you, it soon becomes enabling? And in, in your experience working with people with addiction, working with people with mental health issues, and this is one of the questions where I, I want to just finish up our conversation with, because there's, I know you have a lot of deep insight, but... Where does empathy and compassion, where do you draw the line where it becomes enabling, where you're no longer helping the person? And how do you learn to decipher that and act in that situation? Wow. Yeah, it's, 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 it's incredible. And, and, and it sounds like you uh, are, are able to, you, you, you're taking a step back right now and looking back at these past really, really difficult experiences you've had and wondering what could, what might or might not have been helpful. What might and might not have been helpful for sure. And, and to, 
the people listening that might be in a maybe not an exact same situation, but they know somebody, uh, and maybe not drug addiction, maybe not depression, but maybe another form of illness where, you know, just that idea of. Yeah. So on the one hand, we can talk about the tremendous healing power of reaching out to someone. And on the other hand, you're wondering about the limits of reaching out because you've, you've got personal experience of reaching out and it's not apparently not helping. Yes. Yeah. So there's, so there's it's like a paradox there because we acknowledge the, the power of reaching out and also see its limitations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, and not just limitations, you're putting it in a little bit more uh, extreme form, so to speak. You're wondering whether it can actually enable someone and to not go in a helpful direction. Exactly, right? Where yeah. it becomes so much of an empathetic listener where we're just uh, the, the listener who just constantly listens and acknowledges the pain. Yeah. And that's what they might need. But because we're so empathetic, it gets in the way of providing them with what they need yeah, yeah, yeah. to move forward in their life in positive and productive ways. Yeah, and I had a similar experience around the corner here a couple of years ago where there was a bloke who had an alcohol problem. And um, a friend of mine um, was going around and just befriending him and helping him. He got admitted to hospital, and this friend of mine took some whiskey in a container to give to him in hospital. And um, I was struck then by a similar, a similar dilemma that this person was being, this friend of mine was being incredibly empathic and, um, and yet um, was that helpful. And I, I wouldn't like to pass judgment in either case, in either your case or his, mm. because... Um, you probably can't generalize. Mm. You, you probably can't. I think it would be a mistake to generalize. I think what might be helpful for us is to ask the question, what else could you do? And um, what we've learned in motivational interviewing is that um, empathic listening is not just coming alongside someone which can be incredibly helpful. Um, I witnessed witness the story of, of going on the bridge. The, the story about the, the bridge is a great example of empathic listening being helpful. Okay? We have shared experience, and yours deeply personal, of it not being enough. Okay? And I don't think it's a question of empathy not being helpful, but possibly, and I'm not sure of this, but what we've discovered in motivational interviewing is that empathic listening can be used for, if you like, different purposes. And it can be used for coming alongside someone, but it can also be used in a purposeful way to promote change. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, I, I feel very hesitant about taking this discussion forward because it, it might carry the implication... Uh, Andy, if only you'd done this, you know, yeah. I don't want to talk about your personal experience because, you know, it, it, it's extremely, I think, unwise 
for someone in my position to comment about a personal experience of yours from this sort of distance and we don't know each other. All I'm doing is pointing out that an empathic listening can be used for different purposes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that um, the, the heart of motivational interviewing involves using empathic listening to encourage positive change. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, but that was developed not in order to deal with the scenarios that you and I have talked about. It was developed as an antidote to the much more common scenario where somebody who's in difficulty is people try to persuade them out of that difficulty. Mm -hmm. That's far more common. I mean, you are clearly a golden human being whose empathy has helped people all your life. And that's another reason I don't want to highlight, you know, the story of your brother, because the empathy that's inside you, I have no doubt, has been incredibly appreciated by by people in so many different situations, in your students, and I bet your wife would agree with me, right? So, but uh, we developed these, this purposeful use of empathic listening, as an, if you like, as an antidote to the far more widespread use of persuasion and coercion when someone is in, in trouble. Okay, so that's, I'm just giving you a bit of broader context. So we're, what we're suggesting here is that if you want to enable someone, um, steer clear of solving problems for them, which you and I would completely agree with. But here is an alternative that allows you to both come alongside them, but also use empathic listening to encourage them to consider change. So it's like a purposeful use of it. But, you know, so I end there with that invitation to your listeners uh, to consider the diverse um, ways in which empathic listening can be used. But the, the, the bridge story was just straightforward coming alongside someone empathic listening. But, but, but when, we, when we sat down and had a cup of tea and I said to her, it sounds like you've decided you want to try and find a more constructive way through this, that was purposeful empathic listening. Because her response was to articulate what a more constructive way through it was. So there's a concrete example. But I wouldn't use that on the bridge, if you see what I mean. But when we were chatting and having coffee, I was using motivational engineering skills to help her develop a path for herself in the future. Yeah. So there you go, Andy. Um, we've had dogs barking. It's been a very personal discussion. Um, I'm hoping there might have been one or two things that you found interesting, your, your listeners too. So I, I share that story um, because it's, it's a deeply personal part of my life, but it also is the driving force behind why I do what I do. So yeah, I to people like you is, is very important in my journey. Personally, but also, I hope brings values that great value to the listeners. So, um, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, over the past couple of weeks to speak with me. And uh, Stephen, can you just tell people where they can find you on social media? Um, yeah, I've got a website which is stephenrolnick.com. That's my name. Yeah, um, I've been persuaded to go on Twitter by one of my sons. So I've been dragged out of the Stone Ages, so you can catch me on Twitter. 
Um, I don't offer remote counseling services and things like that. I'm too old for that. You know, I'm like, uh, uh, I'm like an old dinosaur, 68-year-old dinosaur who's working in, in sport and doing very limited amounts of work, really. But, yeah, um, website and Twitter are the two media. Okay. Okay, great. And just to finish off, and, and that's what I was saying before we got cut off, um, was looking back at your career, um, what do you hope your legacy to be or like what do you what are you most proud of in regards to the work you put in and and the passion that you have for what you do day in and day out i think it's those 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 few little moments where you realized you really made a difference in people's lives and um i <laughs> I don't think I've been particularly innovative or inventive. I think all I've done is uncover truths that are in all of us about what helpfulness is. And uh, so I look back on that with pride. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so thank you very much. I'm really appreciative of our time and uh, I hope people check out your work and uh, I'm eternally grateful. So I, I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to reading your book when it comes out. Yeah, you. Oh, I have also written a book for sports coaches, right? Which is, I'm, is the name of it is? Uh, coaching Athletes to Be Their Best. Excellent. And, and that was written how long ago? Oh, it just came out about a year ago. Okay, great. And are you writing a, an additional book right now? Yeah, but I'm always doing some book. But the, the, one that, the one that's most relevant to what we're talking about is Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best. You can catch that in bookshops and things. So, Andy, all the best to you, hey. Honestly, delightful to speak to you and keep in touch, eh? Yeah, thank you very much, Stephen, and uh, best of luck with everything. Okay, thank you. All the best. Bye, Andy.